All right, thank you. This is a great passage. All right, this is, uh, the title is The Heart of Unity, number 14. We've been working through 1 Corinthians. We're almost to the end, like I said, and um, this is an exciting one. I want to begin this morning by reading uh, something Jesus spoke about concerning his second coming. And as I read his words to you, I want you to keep in mind what we learned last week, if you're here, the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When we believe in the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, then God forgives our sins and promises to give us eternal life with him when he comes back. However, for those who don't believe in the gospel of Jesus, they remain in their sins, the consequence of which is that they spend eternity away from the presence of the Lord in a conscious and eternal hell. What we believe in, we learned last week, what we believe in determines our eternal destinies. And that is why it's important that we believe in Jesus. What we also learned through this entire uh, book to the Corinthians is that belief determines behavior. So what we believe in determines our eternal destinies, but it doesn't stop there. Our belief determines how we act. It determines our behavior. And with those two statements in mind, I want to read something that Jesus said. You can turn with me there if you want. Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Here we go. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats he will place on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, uh, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So according to Jesus, we will all be resurrected. Those who are in Christ Jesus to eternal glory and life, and those who are still in Adam to eternal misery and punishment. If we do not believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then our sins are not forgiven and we will be be resurrected to eternal hell. If we believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, then our sins are forgiven and we will be resurrected to eternal glory. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, I mentioned last week that 
if-then statements are powerful tools of logic and discourse. They are important for raising kids and training people because if-then statements reveal cause and effect, right? Actions have consequences. If the Brewers win, then $1 burgers at George Webb, right? Remember those? Yep, remember those days? If the power goes out, then we will not make coffee on Sunday morning. I'm sorry. If wildfires in Canada, which they have stopped, but if the wildfires stop in Canada, we won't have to deal with all the smoke, right? If the child touches the stove, then he will get burned. Cause, effect. But the opposite of the if-then statement is also true, right? If the Packers don't win, then the burgers are regular price at George Webb. If the power doesn't go out, then we will make coffee. If the wildfires in Canada continue, then this smoke is going to continue, which thankfully it is not today. If the child doesn't touch the stove, he's going to be just fine, okay? When Paul uses if-then statements uh, a few times in the passage that we read last week, he said, if the dead can't be raised, then Jesus didn't rise. And we said that the dead will be raised, so Jesus did rise, all right? And then he said, if Jesus didn't rise, then you are still in your sins. But Jesus did rise, and so you are no longer in your sins. He also said, if Jesus didn't rise, then your faith is in vain. But Jesus did rise, and so your faith is not in vain. And we will see today, if there was no resurrection for us, then all the work that we do in Jesus would be meaningless. But as he points out in the end of this passage, there is erection, so all your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's a good thing. We'll see. Those statements are easy enough to accept. At face value, they make sense to us. However, there are always some in the crowd who want more details. They want an explanation. They want to know how the engine works, not just that the engine works. They want to know how the yeast causes the bread to rise, not just that the yeast causes the bread to rise. And I am one of those guys. And I would imagine that Paul was one of those guys too. All right? uh, he wanted to know the what and the how of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And I personally think that's why Jesus gave him a vision of what heaven will be like with God the Father. Uh, Paul talks about the glory and the pain of hearing and seeing all that information in 2 Corinthians we're not going to go there this year, but 2 Corinthians, he talks about that. Anyway, Paul was a master at anticipating the questions that we as humans have and then answering those questions for us. And in today's passage, Paul answers two of those questions that so many of us have. Verse 35, how are the dead raised? And when the dead are raised, what kind of body do they have? You ever ask yourself those questions? You ever ask the Bible those questions? Paul answers them. So here we go. Those are the two uh, points in our outline. So first, what kind of body do the resurrected have? If you're there in 1 Corinthians again, verse 35, some will ask, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body will they come? Okay, You foolish person, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ in glory from one another. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. All right, so Paul starts out, he says, you fool. Like, wow, why does Paul respond like that, right? Sounds kind of 
crazy. It seems kind of mean, derogatory even. Uh, he must have heard someone ask the question before, or he wouldn't voluntarily bring it up here. I think the expression would go more like this in our modern-day lingo, like, hey, dude, you're ridiculous. Just think about it for a second, okay? You see, there were some Corinthian believers who were claiming all, to have all kinds of spiritual knowledge, and yet they were, couldn't understand the biblical concept of death and resurrection. And so Paul has to go to great lengths to explain this important spiritual doctrine to them, and I'm glad he did because now we have it today. So Paul goes to great lengths to explain this to us, and he, he uses an analogy of something that Jesus talked about many times. He uses the analogy of a seed. What you sow in the ground, the seed you plant in the earth, does not come to life unless it dies, right? Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is planted must die before what is to come comes to life. In other words, death is a necessary element of resurrection. You cannot be resurrected if you aren't dead because you're already alive, right? This doesn't make death a good thing. Death is still our enemy, but death is a necessary element of resurrection. And Paul uses the analogy of a seed and a new plant to convey what will happen to us when we are resurrected in the last day. What is sown or what is planted is not the body of what will come. What is planted is a kernel, he says. Right? What is, uh, when we plant a corn kernel, for instance, um, we, it's just one little piece of corn that goes into the ground and that one kernel dies. And from that one kernel, we know, comes a huge plant, right? A corn plant. It looks very different than the kernel did. Much bigger, different materials, and it produces more ears of corn, and each ear has more kernels than when it started with. The resurrection of the body is different and more. It is fruitful and full of plenty. From the kernel of corn's vantage point, you know, if it's a little kernel of corn looking up and seeing that, it could not imagine what it would be like when it sprouted and grew after it died, right? The plant bears no resemblance to the seed that was planted. The plant has a different body than the seed has. But looking from the plant's vantage point, it can look back to the seed in that there are new seeds that formed on the plant, and it can go, oh, that's where I came from, right? In the same way, we cannot envision what our new bodies will be like. But we will find, when we finally receive them, there will be no doubt that our new bodies will be connected to our present bodies in some way. Our present bodies are the seed form for what our resurrected bodies will be like. Which means that our present physical bodies are important. These bodies matter. You see, in God's plan for us, our bodies are not done away with. They're not transformed and, and resurrected to, they, sorry, they are transformed and resurrected to new life. At the same time, though, our bodies are not just revived. Like, our corpses are not just brought back to life to be what we were when we, before we were resurrected. Think of the seed, an old hull passes away, and the elements of the seed are transformed into something new, a new plant that comes, right? And so with our current bodies, the old hull will pass away, and the elements, so to speak, of our bodies will be transformed into our new bodies. These will be gloriously different from our current bodies, thank goodness, just as a sunflower is gloriously different than a sunflower seed. Think about that. Think of the different kinds of seeds that you you know, interact with in spring and summer. Sunflower seeds, dandelion seeds, raspberry seeds, acorns, pine cones, 
the maple whirly birds that fall down, all the different types of seeds, right? Think of the seed and then think of the plant that just one seed produces. When I let my mind wander a little bit through the scriptures and I try to imagine what our new bodies might be like, I think we're going to be blown away at God's creativity and his love in how he recreates us. Think about that. Moses' face glowed when he saw God, right? The, Trump, the prophet Daniel wrote that we will shine like the sun. Paul describes us as living stones in the temple of God. In Ephesians, Paul wrote that we collectively are being built into the dwelling place of God. In Revelation, the apostle John describes the bride of Jesus as a city, a city in which God dwells with men. Very interesting. Jesus, in his resurrected body, startled the disciples when he came to them, right? They were afraid when they saw him, and, and they thought he was a spirit, even though he was resurrected in the body, in his body. And yet Jesus was able to vanish and reappear, and Jesus was recognizable, but yet not entirely. Jesus had scars, but yet his body was gloriously perfect. I'm just saying God is up to something that if we were able to see it, it would most likely blow our minds. I'm getting excited. John tried to describe it in the book of Revelation. So did the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah, as did Paul, who saw it but was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from continuing to talk about it, right? The disciples were slow to recognize Jesus, and it was difficult for them to describe his new body after he was resurrected. So I'm saying it's going to be exciting to see what our bodies will be like when we get resurrected with Jesus, right? He will dwell among us and he will be in us and all will be new in the new heavens and the new earth. And now Paul, having seen a glimpse of what awaits us, right, in eternity, he goes on to explain how this idea of resurrection is displayed in nature in how God created the world and the universe. He says, not all created bodies are the same. So let's we already read that part. He says, God gave to uh, each thing that he created, just as he chose, a body, right? Uh, to each seed carries like the DNA for its body plus the new plant that will come. So not all flesh is the same. Human flesh is different from animal flesh, and animal flesh is different than bird flesh, bird flesh than fish. And, uh, you know, he's just kind of explaining that there's these different types of bodies that God created for different purposes, right? Anyone who eats meat understands this difference. And then there's bacon, which is what I think Paul is talking about in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies, bacon, and there are earthly bodies, fish. I'm kidding. <laughs> heavenly bodies, angels, right? Earthly bodies, humans. The glory of the heavenly is vastly different than the glory of the earthly. There is glory in the earthly, right? Just as the sun is brilliant in glory and the moon is lesser in glory, but they are both glorious. And this is how, uh, even the stars differ in intensity and size and glory, and, and this is how the resurrection of the dead will be, Paul's saying. Our resurrected bodies will be different, more glorious, but our resurrected bodies will resemble our bodies that we've inhabited here on earth. And these bodies are the seed form of our heavenly bodies. These bodies contain the DNA, so to speak, for our heavenly bodies, just like an oak tree is completely different than the acorn, and yet the acorn is the seed for the majestic oak. The acorn containing the DNA of the mighty oak tree falls into the ground, it's covered, it shrivels, and it dies. Right? As one commentator put it, in secrecy and in mystery, water and nutrients in the ground combine with the energy of the sun to bring about resurrection. Right? The life-giving DNA hidden in the seed organizes life out of death and decay, first the sprout 
and then the stem, and then the leaf, and then the full-grown tree. I love that description. It's, it's going to be the same for us. I want you to listen to something. First Peter two, uh, one, First Peter 1.23, Peter says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So God's imperishable seed, His DNA is in us, and that DNA is the Holy Spirit who came into us when we believed the gospel that was preached to us. Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, my body, my spirit and soul, all that contains the DNA of God's Spirit and His Holy Word, the gospel, and it will eventually be buried into the ground, and it will be covered, and it will shrivel, and it will die. In secrecy and mystery, the water of the Word of God and the Spirit will combine with the power of Jesus, the Son of God, to bring about resurrection life. How does that all happen? I don't know, but Paul is saying it will. And I will become something new, something I have never imagined, but I will be exactly what God designed me to be. And it's the same for all of you. We will be resurrected with glorious new bodies, beautiful and bringing glory to God, not subject to decay, unable to die, fit for the new heaven and new earth in a new age of God's kingdom, in perfect harmony with everyone else that God has created. And I want you to look at how Paul compares our current bodies with our resurrected bodies. Verse 42, the seed form is perishable. That means it's given to age and decomposition. And some of us are like, yep, can't stop time and gravity from doing its job at decomposing us right in front of our eyes, right? The resurrected form is imperishable, unable to age, unable to decompose. Eternity won't affect our bodies. They are not going to get older. They won't sag, and they won't be susceptible to pain and decay. That's awesome. All right, verse 43, dishonor, right? That means like shame and guilt and disgrace and sinfulness. We carry that about in our bodies. The glory is the other side. The resurrection form will be glory, full of dignity and honor and sinlessness and perfection, right? In verse 43, what's sown in weakness, sickness and disease and infirmity and all the things we carry, resurrected bodies will be full of power and might and health and strength and wholeness. Right? In verse 44, it's sown a natural body. We can see him here. Verse 40, uh, it says he's going to be raised a spiritual body. What is, that? what is a spiritual body anyway? We can't even wrap our heads around that. Spiritual means spirit to us, but yet it's a body. Two in one. It's going to be great. The Old Testament tells us that the first Adam became a living being or a soul, verse 45, but the New Testament attests that the last Adam is a life-giving spirit, and this is referring to Jesus Christ. And the, the seed form is we bear the image of the man of dust, verse 47 to 49, and we're all human because we were born through Adam. In the resurrected form, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. We will all be changed because we were born again through Jesus. So our resurrected bodies will be far better, far more glorious, incorruptible, heavenly, spiritual, powerful, healthy, strong, eternal, mature, and sinless, which is awesome if you think about it. I don't think that we dwell upon these eternal, heavenly things enough. I think we kind of think they're weird, maybe a little bit crazy, right? But we need to be reminded of these things because they give us hope. But Paul isn't done yet. He goes on to answer our next question, how are the dead resurrected? Verse 50 to 57. So he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 50, Paul's like, I'm glad you asked how the dead are resurrected, but here's the deal. I have to tell you one thing first. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Neither can something that dies inherit something that doesn't die. Something that decays cannot obtain something that does not decay. Remember what Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born again is the only way into God's kingdom. Why can't flesh and blood get into the kingdom of God? Because this perishable body must put on imperishable. I couldn't spit that out. It must put on the imperishable. Why can't flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? Because this mortal body must put on immortality, verse 53. And this is why. He says, behold, listen, look, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to tell you a secret, he says. Perhaps you will understand then, right? We all like secrets, right? Who doesn't like to be on the inside scoop of something, be the only one of the select people that knows something that everyone else doesn't, right? Well, Paul's hooking us with our curiosity as humans, right, for the unknown. And here's how the dead will be raised, he says, resurrected to life. You ready? He says, not all of us will die. Some of us will remain alive until the coming of the Lord. Some of us, that is. We don't know who that is, but there will be a few believers alive when Jesus comes again to claim his bride. But for the majority of us, we will die. Jesus will come back to get us and to resurrect our bodies. And when he does, we will all be changed and transformed into something we cannot even imagine, something that will blow our minds. And this is another reason why flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, because our sin and weakness cannot contain the magnitude of glory and power that awaits us. We have to be changed, and we will be in a moment. And the word for moment is atomos, or atom, an atom of time, a period of time that cannot be cut in two. It's indivisible. In other words, in an instant, we'll be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul uses another description. It's in the blink of an eye. In other words, super fast, like blink, done, gone. We're changed, right? And when will this happen? At the last trumpet sound. So because Paul writes, the trumpet will sound. And it's going to happen. It's an undeniable fact. It was predicted back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 14. He said, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds from the south. And on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they will shine in his land. Think of that. We will be very, very different. We will be shining. Jesus promised it in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and they all 
then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And Paul wrote about it elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. So the trumpet will sound, Jesus will come, the dead will be raised imperishable in a moment, in the blink of an eye, all will be new, and verse 52, we will all be changed. Amen? Amen. Yes, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Because here's the deal, and here's what Paul's saying. Oh, Corinthians, listen to this, all right? Oh, believers from every corner of the world, those who suffer persecution, those who are on the brink of death, those whose bodies are decaying, those who suffer and struggle day after day. Oh, KMCC, think about it. This, this perishable body will put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 53. And when that happens, when we are resurrected with imperishable bodies, with immortal bodies, bodies that cannot die, that is when God's word will come to completion. And all will be fulfilled. And the eternal plan of God will be finished. God has had this mystery up his sleeve the whole time. <laughs> what an awesome God. But have you ever wondered where the resurrection to eternal life is mentioned in the Old Testament? Like Paul's always talking about Old Testament, right? I want you to, I want you to key in on this. Is this just a New Testament thing? No, it's not. Turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. This is where Paul gets his quote. I'm going to read verse 6 to 9 here. He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. That sounds delicious, by the way. It's going to be a feast in heaven like none other. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations. And what is this thing he's going to swallow up? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord, God, will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, oh, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Oh, Resurrection was predicted way back in Isaiah. And then the second half of that quote in 1 Corinthians that he talks about is from Hosea, another, another prophet, Hosea 13, 14. He said, I, God said, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the power of death. I will redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? That's Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Psalm 16, 9 the psalmist wrote, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh, my body, also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul and shield or let your Holy One see corruption. 
That's talk of resurrection right there. Psalm 49, 13 to 15. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Like sheep, they are pointed for shield. Death shall be their shepherd. Their form will be consumed in shield with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of shield, for he will receive me. He's going to receive me. Isaiah 26 says, Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for, the dew is a, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Isaiah 26, 19, that is. Resurrection has been in, up God's sleeve this whole time. The Apostle John brings it all together in Revelation 21, 1-6. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things are gone, passed away. It's going to happen. Jesus is going to come again, and he will resurrect our bodies to new and incomprehensible life. Death will be defeated. Sin will be no more. It's all going to be done away with no more struggle. The sting of death, which is sin, will be gone. The hold that sin has over us through the law will be no more. The victory belongs to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen? Therefore. He always does this, right? He gets us so excited and he says, therefore, what you believe determines how you behave. Here's what's important. This is why resurrection is a big deal. Jesus has been raised. Because Jesus has been raised, your faith is not in vain. It's a vital and life-giving thing. Because your faith in the risen Jesus, you are not in your sin, and the preaching of the cross is full of power. It's the message of Jesus. It's the way, the truth, and the life. And because all of this is true, we should be telling everyone about it so that they are on the right side of this awesome and incredible God. So that they can believe and be resurrected to eternal life with us instead of remaining in unbelief where they will be resurrected to eternal fire. And because, of, uh, because those of us who believe will be raised in a moment, and that moment is imminent, and because we will be resurrected to live forever with a glorified bodies in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because this is true, we need not fear death because Jesus has given us victory over death through the power that raised him from the dead. Remember, belief determines behavior. Therefore, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In short, live with confident hope. Be steadfast in your faith, immovable in your confidence in God's promises, always abounding in the work of the Lord. When you understand the, inc in the incredible resurrection life that awaits you, and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and will raise us up with him in the end. Not only is your faith not in vain, but your labor is not in vain. So God says, give it your all. Be confident in your hope because this life isn't all that there is. Be steadfast, 
Stand firm in your trust that God will resurrect you to eternal life in the day of the Lord. You have nothing to worry about, not even death, because you are secure in his faithfulness. Be immovable. Be firmly persistent in your confidence that he will come and that he will destroy his enemies and he will enforce justice and righteousness, wiping away every tear from our eyes and taking away all pain and death. Sin will be no more. We have confident hope in this, so Paul says live like it. Always abound in the work of the Lord. And what is the Lord's work? It begins with loving him with all that you are. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of the reward. Colossians 3. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10. Love the Lord God and then... Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. Let all you do be done in love. This is a selfless abandon of love for others. This love includes a love even for enemies and those who mistreat you. As Jesus said, as you have done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. This verse is hugely important in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's Paul concluding the whole letter right here. I'm going to go back through the letter to show you how belief in the resurrection of ourselves, not just Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus and ourselves in the end time is the key ingredient in being a gospel-centered community. Correct understanding and belief in the dogma of the resurrection puts the whole letter in perspective. Chapter 1, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected together with him, be united, agree, and don't have division. Because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, consider, chapter 2, the wisdom of crucifixion and live crucified lives, because you will be raised. Chapter 3, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, build up the unity of the body of Christ. Chapter 4, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected together with him, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others by humbly serving one another. Chapter 5, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, don't let sexual immorality defile your physical bodies or the church body. Chapter 6, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, work out miscommunications and settle disputes in love instead of taking one another to court. Chapter 6, right? Chapter 7, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, be content with the situation in life that God has put you in and live sexually pure life with the spouse God has placed with you. Chapter 7. Chapter 8, because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, be theologically humble in your interactions with one another. Because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, willingly surrender your rights for the, for the sake of others as Jesus did for you. Chapter 9. Because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, run away from sin and idolatry and run to Jesus, living in humble dependence on him, chapter 10. Because Jesus is resurrected and you will be with him, use the gifts of the Spirit that God gave you for the common good and to mutually build one another up in love, chapter 12. I missed chapter 11. Jesus resurrected and you will be resurrected with him. Worship God in modesty under his structure of authority and responsibility. Chapter 13, because he's resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, love one another. 
Because he's resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, let all things be done decently and in order so all may learn and be encouraged and built up. Chapter 14. Because Jesus is resurrected and you will go with him, tell others about how they can be saved with confident hope of the resurrection. Chapter 15. And because Jesus is resurrected and you will be resurrected with him, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You see, the power to live the Christian life comes from the hope we have of resurrection with Jesus. The first letter to the Corinthians can be summed up in this. Allow the loving gospel of Jesus Christ, the example of his sacrificial life, his substitutionary death, his selfless burial, his loving resurrection, and his edifying return, allow our belief in this to shape how we interact with one another as a gospel-centered community. Because this life is not all that there is. And because this life is not all that there is, Jesus says, love one another. Because love never ends, and we will be resurrected to live in eternal love in the kingdom of God. And here's what is so assuring. It's so incredible. It's a great promise, and this is huge. Paul says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And that's the beauty of Jesus' resurrection. Chapter 15, verse 10 started out, Paul said, his grace toward me was not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain, verse 14. Our faith is not in vain, verse 14. And our labor is not in vain, verse 58. None of what we do is in vain. Therefore, brothers and sisters, live like that. Live the grace-filled reality of your belief with reckless abandon, confident in the hope that Jesus has given us. Death will be no more. We will be immortal and living in the loving kingdom of God for all eternity. Because none of this is in vain, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that as you have lovingly done it to the least of these, you've lovingly done it to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what an amazing, amazing thing to consider. That when we pass from this life, we have the hope of resurrection again. And all these struggles and all these difficulties and the sin and the evil and everything will be done away with and we will live with you in perfect harmony and perfection and glory and light. And death will be no more. We all know someone that's passed. We have them in the back of our minds. We look forward to the day when we will see them resurrected and glorious and we will be right next to them and in your presence for all eternity. That is an incredible hope. God, help us to live like that. Live in the light of that, that God, this world doesn't matter at the end of it. It's, we're going to be resurrected with you. So let us live and love like you might be coming back tomorrow. And we hope that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.